Mark's Gospel in chapter 12 we're on, of course. Um, we're beginning this week to read from verse 13. And it's just a few verses, verses 13 to 17. And they send unto him, that's Jesus, certain of the Pharisees and of the Herodians to catch him in his words. And when they were come, they say unto him, Master, we know that thou art true and carest for no man, for thou regardest not the person of men, but teachest the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? Shall we give or shall we not give? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said unto them, Why tempt ye me? Bring me a penny, that I may see it. And they brought it, and he saith unto them, Whose is this image and superscription? And they said unto him, Caesar's. And Jesus answering said unto them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marvelled at him. So, we're looking at this issue of our responsibilities to the state uh, and to God. So we're with Jesus in the temple with the disciples. And he's already met with opposition from the religious, religious elite. They questioned his authority to do the things he did and to say the things he said. And he calmly and wisely puts them in their place. You may remember he then went on to give a uh, to deliver this parable about a vineyard and in the story he shows himself as the son who was killed by the farm workers and of course he linked that into the um, the Jews killing him and after the parable he made a reference to some Old Testament prophecy and it was about a stone a stone that was supposed to be used for, for a, a building, um, a, big, a big block, and yet it was found to be not fit, not right, not good enough to be included in a, in a decent building. And yet it became the most important stone in the whole spiritual construction of an eternal temple. Not one made of bricks, actually, but the worldwide church of God. And he laid claim also to being this great cornerstone. The this this twelfth uh, chapter of Mark is is an it's an interesting one we, because we see in it each of the three uh, groups that make up the San the main groups that make up the the Sanhedrin that. Um, religious class of people and they tested Jesus in in different ways so we have we have the Pharisees well they were looking at them today and they questioned Jesus about taxation and then we have next week hopefully we'll see the Sadducees question Jesus about the doctrine of resurrection and then a week after we'll see the scribes the sort of intellectual ones uh, question Jesus about scriptural interpretation 
And as we go through them this week and the following weeks, take note that in each case they address Jesus as master, which means teacher. And, and although their use of the title is insincere, he actually affirms the title by the authority shown in the things that he says in his responses. So today then there's a there's a, a, a slight uh, delay before the opposition continues. The Sanhedrin have conspired to send a, a select group of individuals to test Jesus. And they think this group, using a new tactic, will be the one to ensnare this Nazarene they hate so much. The group's made up of... It's made up of uh, Pharisees and Herodians. Now, you might recall way back in chapter 3, those two groups made a sort of alliance uh, to destroy Jesus. And those two Jewish sects are not... They were not ordinarily the best of friends, uh, but they, they overcame their differences in order to attack this common enemy. So at this point, they've they've already decided they're going to put Jesus on trial. They just need to know how to get in there. That their aim today is to entice Jesus to say something incriminating that they can use in evidence in court against him. So, despite Jesus teaching with such authority, despite his obviously genuine miracles that by the way they didn't even dispute and despite his great kindness despite his indications he was the messiah and despite his warnings that they were going to kill the son of god they remain steadfast in their determination to wipe him off the face of the planet the their deceptive approaches are not limited to to calling him master. They they also pretend to believe he has authority. They pretend to believe he speaks truth, that he isn't influenced by thoughts of his own safety or his own reputation, and they they pretend to believe he's appointed by God, by God in heaven. When I said a moment ago they wanted to ensnare Jesus, it was a very, it's a very suitable word. If you look at verse 13, the word translated catch was used to describe catching animals or fish in a trap. So it's another indication of the contempt that they held Jesus in. So the question itself is found in verse 14 and 15. Should we pay taxes to imperial Rome? There were, there were many taxes in those days, just as there are today for us. This one was a kind of poll tax, a per capita tax. So everyone everyone paid and everyone gave the same amount. And it paid for the benefits enjoyed by the citizens of Judea. The selection of a small number of Pharisees with a small number of Herodians had been carefully thought out. The Pharisees paid these taxes, but they thoroughly resented doing so. The Herodian families, the Herodians, they they were much more friendly 
with the Roman rulers and they didn't mind paying tax partly because they tended to come from wealthy families you may, you may have guessed you may have guessed why those two groups are chosen on this occasion because they're not sure how Jesus is going to answer this question about taxes but whatever way he answers they'll have him if he tells them they should pay taxes the Pharisees stand ready to accuse him of being a traitor to the Jewish people if on the other hand he tells them they shouldn't pay taxes to avoid that that they shouldn't pay the taxes the Herodians are standing by to accuse him of being a traitor to imperial Rome verse 15 shows us um, that Jesus sees their hypocrisy and he says you know why are you tempting me why are you trying to trick me the, the the word um the word we have translated hypocrisy it conveys the idea of someone playing a part in a in a in a, in a drama uh, someone maybe wearing a mask and their, their pretense of acknowledging his authority shows us the, the the suitability of that word jesus's answer is unexpected it's an answer they could never have predicted Pay your taxes, Jesus says, but give God what he's due also. His message to the Pharisees is, if they're happy to receive the benefits of the state, they should contribute taxes that pay for it. His message to the Herodians is more like, well, they needed to make sure they didn't honour Rome too much at the expense of devotion to God. So this party, this religious party, had gone from being confident they finally had Jesus to being stunned at his wisdom. Their plan had failed. As we, as we look at some uh, principles today of our duty both to the state and God, I hope, I hope we'll also we'll gain a better perspective so we'll be less inclined to focus on unimportant things and instead put the put the worship of God uh, uh, as the primacy in our lives so so the first thing we look at is our duty to our government well we're all part of we're all part of a society whatever in this world we live we're part of a larger group of people with civil rulers over us and throughout history people have found a greater advantage in being part of a wider community than living in isolation I know people go off into the you know to live in a hut in the Scottish Highlands or go into the woods in the Alaskan wilderness but you will note that they they still they still enjoy the the um the protection of the state and 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 the, the, even the the healthcare uh, should they need it well in the history of thought and philosophy th 
there's this notion of the social contract here. Describes how people enter into an arrangement with the people who will rule over them. And they agree to be considered as part of a society of people and they forfeit some of their freedom. They have to abide by laws now. And in return, the state provides them with security and other benefits. We can see, I think, in Jesus' response, there's an encouragement for believers to fulfil their side of the contract. While they're in this world, they're to sacrifice some of their freedom in order to submit themselves to rulers. And they must sacrifice some of their income to contribute to the benefits these rulers bring. But believe, you know, as believers, we have we have much higher priorities. You know, our our, our worldview is is utterly different. You know, we we think highly of of God and spiritual things above all else. But despite that, we still must play our part in whatever situation God has planted us in. You might remember what Paul says to the folks at the Church of Rome. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. The apostle directed them in this way while they lived under the rule of a pagan empire. And the particular emperor running the show was by no means one of the better ones. It was cruel. Yet Paul, in agreement with the teachings of Jesus reminds the believers it is God who places rulers in their positions. Well, obviously this, this teaching has caused problems for many people, including me. All kinds of dilemmas. It raises so many questions. I've always been a fan of Oliver Cromwell, but thinking about it, was Oliver Cromwell right to carry out a coup? A military coup against uh, the king and have this divinely appointed king killed. Uh, were the allies justified in toppling uh, Adolf Hitler, a man ordained to that position by God himself? Was the reformer Zwingli reasonable in um, waging war against the leaders of uh, Roman Catholic states? because they wouldn't agree to his demands. Well, we should count ourselves blessed if we find ourselves living in a country relatively free because we don't have to make such big ethical decisions. It's clearer for us, at the moment anyway. We have a duty to submit ourselves to national and local government. The lesson I've had to learn is... That I'm not to use the language I once did to describe leaders I don't like. Now, I won't risk alienating any of you by naming individual leaders because that will give away uh, my political views. But I'll acknowledge that up until quite recently, I despised uh, certain rulers. I, I I called them the scum of the earth and everything else, and I forgot. I forgot that they were put in these positions by God. And let's acknowledge this, friends. 
Almost all the rulers God has ordained throughout history have been unbelievers. And many of those have had vicious streaks. But we submit ourselves to them as far as we're able. And this includes paying taxes. It's irrelevant how high the taxes are. Uh, the, the capital tax spoken uh, about it in, in our story today was, was very small. It was like, uh, you know, what one day's wages uh, a year. So, but there were many other taxes uh, on top of this, and some have estimated that the people of Judea ended up handing over almost half of their income. Uh, I imagine, I imagine perhaps in our modern society, uh, there's people who who are paying not far off that. So this has a bearing on our society too. So we, we, we pay taxes in the UK. We pay, uh, we pay taxes on uh, our income, uh, goods that we buy, fuel, property, um, inheritance, uh, many, many other things. And, and over in the States, they, they have to pay local, state and federal taxes and lots of others like, like, like we do. We can object to them. We can write to our elected representatives and moan about them. We can start social media campaigns against them. But all the while, we must pay them. It's it's interesting that Jesus brings attention to the picture of Caesar on their coins. He tells them, it's all effectively Caesar's money anyway. And if he wants some of it back, give it to him. When you analyse the language used by both the Pharisees and Jesus, it reveals something about the different attitudes. Because the question in verse 15, uh, their question was phrased like, like this, if I can paraphrase it. Should we hand over our money to the state? So they, 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 they thought the money was theirs and it was outrageous for the state to demand any of it. But Jesus replied, you have a debt, so pay it. It's not as if they were unaccustomed to the idea of paying taxes for services received. They were happy to pay religious taxes, for example. They presumably uh, begrudged paying taxes to Rome because you know, they, they, they saw them as an occupying power. But the point is, they still received benefits from Rome. Putting aside all the, the problems, the faults, the cruelties, Rome still provided benefits. This reminded me of a film years ago. A film I saw, it, I won't mention the name of it because I don't want you to think I'm recommending it. It's not, in many ways, it's not, not suitable. But it's a comedy and it's set in first century Judea. And we have this secret meeting of these Jewish insurrectionists, these freedom fighters, these terrorists, who want to end the Roman occupation. And as the chairman begins to vent against the Roman rulers, he asks the rhetorical question, what have the Romans ever done for us, eh? And he expected everyone just to nod. But one of the insurrectionists raised his hand and said, well, there's the aqueduct. And the chairman says, what? Well, you know, the, the aqueduct fetches water. So 
the, the leader the leader grudgingly uh, acknowledges this but he repeats the question you know, apart from that what have the Romans ever done for us eh? and then someone else pipes up sanitation <laughs> and, and this continues this continues for about five minutes and then the chairman ends up saying okay so apart from the aqueduct sanitation roads irrigation medicine education public baths safety health and peace what have the Romans ever done for us and it was a joke of course but all those things were very real benefits in first century Roman occupation and even if we're angered at the amount of tax we're asked to pay or the sheer number of different types of taxes we should pay up for all their faults governments are ordained by God and they use taxpayers money to benefit society as a whole um, speaking generally Christians would dispute you know where some of the money's directed to submitting ourselves to our rulers uh, means keeping the law of the land as well christians should be seen as law-abiding people the only reasons any christians should be in jail is for the for the sake of the gospel there's already pressure uh, i note uh, there's already pressure on governments there's already voices asking for the Bible to be banned. The ownership and public reading of the Bible should be outlawed. You don't need me to tell you uh, which groups in society are campaigning the hardest for this. I think you know. But if new laws come out forbidding the public reading of the Bible, we'll ignore them. We'll just ignore them. Um... We're just following in the footsteps of the apostles. Acts 5.29 says, Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. In other words, the church is to function as it's supposed to, regardless of the law of the land. It may have to adapt by meeting in secret for example but it'll do it'll do all it can to continue it's worth taking just a minute to talk about other laws i know some christians claim to keep the whole law of the land i mean that's that's just not even possible no one's ever completely avoided breaking the law even if it's even if it's in minor ways i'm assuming that when christians break the law it's in minor ways but it's true some are extremely careful about these things even to the point of it becoming almost like a pharisaic you know burden and then at the other end of the scale we have all those christians who are too casual they seem too casual about keeping the law of the land all i can recommend is this keep the law uh, don't pay so much attention to the minutiae that it becomes a burden but don't flout it in such a way as to bring disrepute on the name of Christ. And in all things, pray for a lively conscience that's neither too sensitive nor too insensitive. 
I want to mention just one other aspect of our duty to the authorities and it's about prayer. 1 Timothy chapter 2, the first three verses read like this. I exhort therefore that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceful, peaceable life in all godliness and honesty, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Saviour. Rulers, even the most wicked ones, have been given that role by God. And as fellow creatures, they're made in the image of God, just like us. So no matter how you view them, there's no escape for us. Whether they're good or bad, whether you support their their ideology or not, there's no escape because the believer is to love both his friends and his enemies. There's no that means there's no one there's no one anywhere that is to be made an exception to this. So we pray for those in authority. We bring before God uh, local councillors city mayors, members of parliament, the cabinet, uh, ministers and of course the prime minister and believers in other countries will be obliged to pray for members of congress, uh, senators, presidents, supreme rulers and so on. Now friends I'm under no illusion of how difficult this could be. The Christian feels outrage when a nation's leader smilingly advocates the killing of children in the womb or the destruction of the traditional family unit. But remember this, you believers are the only ones God listens to. The only prayers for leaders that will be taken notice of by God are yours. So if through laziness you don't pray for those in authority over you, then you must share responsibility for any wickedness the country suffers at their hands. So what what exactly is it where to pray for? Well, we pray for them pray for the leaders that they will receive wisdom from on high. Pray they'll enact um good laws and repeal bad ones even pray they'll make righteous decisions pray we'll enjoy a good amount of liberty as a society and for the church to have the freedom of of worship and expression and pray too for those rulers who are believers there aren't many and they tend not to last very long at least in this country with the various godless influences uh, just setting out to to just ruin them but as long as they're in those positions they need our prayer let's have a look now then we've looked at duties to the government and we're going to look at our responsibilities now to God well we thought it's curious that that's a famous phrase isn't it render unto Caesar it's always the first part of the verse that's, that's quoted I've noticed more than the, more than the second half, the bit about God, <laughs> um, and that's more important, of course. 
I mean, it is important to obey the authorities, but far more important to obey God, to give him his due. When Jesus says we're to pay God what's rightly his, he's also having a dig at the Sanhedrin, because you'll remember he accused them of robbing God by denying him the honour he was due. They were to pay Caesar with money and pay God with the sacrifice of themselves. Bible students have often wondered whether there's another layer of meaning in Jesus' response. Well, think about think about this verse from the beginning of our Bibles, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. It says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. God created man in his own image. We could think of it this way. Jesus uses the fact of Caesar's image on the coin to show his ownership of it and their responsibility to return it when asked. And you could also point a man bearing the image of God. Therefore they, being owned by God, have a responsibility to give God what's his. That is, give of themselves. And you who are believers have a very particular responsibility. You're the only ones, remember, who is able to give God worship that's acceptable to him. Remember, everything coming from you to God is only acceptable to him because you're united to Jesus Christ. It's the value of Jesus' righteousness. That's the basis for God accepting all your praises and all your requests. It's because of your involvement with Calvary that all your offerings of praise are sanctified. So what exactly is it we're to give to God? Praise. In praising God, we're telling him what we think of him. Uh, what do we think of him? Well, we believe him to be the Most High God, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, invisible yet all-powerful, the one who has immortality, the one who not only created the world, but governs it by his perfect wisdom. So we praise him for that. And we also thank him. There's thanksgiving. There's so much to thank God for. There are the natural things like friends and family, shelter, food and water, so on but more especially there are the spiritual things like our salvation forgiveness of sins the promise of eternal life fellowship with the saints freedom to preach the gospel and so on praise and thanksgiving and also confession of sin because God is pleased when we acknowledge our failings each day I recommend each day um we're to freely confess the ways in which we've insulted God in the previous 24 hours. And this ability to admit sin is a mark of a believer because fake Christians can often be identified by their unwillingness to talk about how they sin against God and against his people. So we, we, we give to God praise and thanksgiving and we... we confessions of sin and there's also service we we, we, we we give to God through our 
serve us and there's 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 several ways we can we can serve god we can well we, we serve god for example by worshiping uh, him with other people and again that's an area where those who are only pretending to be christians often neglect assembling with the saints because i suppose being in that company brings into focus their their dodgy condition um it's like it's like the the, the parable of the the guy uh, who sneaked into a wedding and they all had posh wedding garments on and, and there's this man in his scruffy clothes and he stood out a mile you see and so often if someone's pretending to be a christian they will feel uncomfortable just by just by the knowledge that the people around them are sanctified are sanctified people so we serve god by worshiping worshiping him in church or as now online and we serve God by ministering to the saints. We make sure their material needs are met. And we help them with their spiritual needs. Like um, encouraging them. Just encouraging them to carry on. You know, carry on in the race. Uh, for praying for them. Praying with them. And, you know, remember they, they're our real family. So they should be in our thoughts all the time. How else do we serve God? Well, we serve God by testifying to others about what he's done for us. We tell them he's had mercy on us. We tell them he's forgiven our sins. We tell them he's promised there's a place for us in his eternal paradise. And at the very heart of all that we say about God is the cross of Christ that Jesus took our sins on himself so that he could be blamed for them while we walk away scot-free. We tell people about Jesus being the best friend and brother we've ever had. And then we urge those hearers to find Jesus while they can. In a week or two, we're going to come across this verse in Mark, and it's in the 12th chapter, but it's a bit further on. It says, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. We're not to think we can ever repay God for what he's done for us, but still we use this language of repayment. Uh, and that, that last verse... It's expressed differently in different places in the Bible, but what it's, each time it's meant to convey is that we're to, we're, to, we're to love God with every aspect of our being. We love him sincerely. We love him uh, emotionally. We love him intellectually. Uh, and we, we, we do all this with as much vigour as we can. So... What we're to take from this today is there are duties to governments and duties to God. And so we obey both the law of the land and the law of Christ. Now, when when the law of the land is in conflict uh, with our duties as believers, that causes a problem. Uh, in a way, it would be... Um, 
it would be a little bit easier if if there was just a, a blanket ban on Christianity because all Christians, then all genuine Christians would know that we're to ignore the law in that case. Just ignore them. Christians in the early church, you know, they were put to death for refusing to simply take a pinch of incense and put it on some hot coals as a gesture of emperor worship. They were prepared to die. Protestants were killed by the Church of Rome for refusing to worship uh, a wafer, a mass wafer. And even today, believers are being imprisoned and sometimes killed for refusing to show reverence to pictures of leaders. But as I mentioned earlier, there have been times in the past when believers have been in morally difficult situations. They're more... Uh, less dangerous but more difficult to to judge on um, how do we draw that line in the sand well as a small example consider the situation in the uk and in places around the world today the whole population has spent much of the last year in a kind of effectual house arrest and this has prevented christians from fulfilling their duty and so we've had some christians uh, flout the regulations and others stick to them strictly with both sides arguing passionately on social media that they're right the truth is we have been prevented from meeting with the brethren properly we haven't been allowed to visit lonely people many of whom are unable to connect to 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 through the internet um, we haven't been able to break bread together we've been hindered from much of our outreach i mean those of us in um ministry to prisoners and to young people have been stopped from doing that so you could say the church has for the most part shown itself to be a, a group of good citizens but our priority isn't how we look to the world our priority is trying to find out what is the best course of action regarding God and the worship of him now I believe the church has cooperated with all these restrictions so much because they've um, they've succumbed to fear-mongering, if you like, or else you may think that they've they've responded properly to the real threat. But others went along with all this because they assumed the lockdown last year was was a very short-term response and so they thought we'll make a brief compromise but it's gone on far longer than we expected where will we draw the line how long should we hold back from doing our joyful duty to god how do we know when to start disobeying the authorities but god forbid that our motto would become we ought to obey men rather than God. Well, don't ask me for the, you know, if you're looking for answers. I have a remedy, but it won't surprise you. We need to pray more. We need to, we need to pray. We need to acknowledge to God that he's the one who put this government in power. He's the one who created this virus. He's the one who caused it to spread. And brethren, if we believe in God's sovereignty as we claim to, we must confess it is God who's taken the lives of those millions of people. So we bow the knee to him and we praise him as Lord and beg him for
for mercy. Some of you will have heard of Justin, Justin Martyr. He was a leading figure in the early church. It was at a time when certain believers made what were called apologies. It's got nothing to do with saying sorry for stuff. That A Christian apology is, is an argument in favour of Jesus Christ. And these apologies were often addressed to rulers. And this one, I'll show you now, was delivered to Emperor Titus in the 2nd century. Justin says, Whence to God alone we render worship, but in other things we gladly serve you, acknowledging you as kings and rulers of men and praying that with your kingly power you be found to possess also sound judgment. As something to leave you with, I think that's a pretty sound attitude. I hope the Lord blesses you as you figure out how to live in this present world, doing your duty to society, and more especially, putting the worship of God at the very pinnacle of your priorities. Now, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Thank you so much, folks, for joining us. And it's my prayer now that the word of God will have its effect and that the Holy Spirit even now might be uh, bringing a, the peace and the joy of God into your hearts and he might give you heavenly wisdom to know how to judge these sometimes awkward situations. Uh, until I see you again, uh, God bless you all in Jesus' name.